Hello, baseball fans. Welcome to Sully Baseball Daily, the podcast we talk about baseball 365 days a year, unless it's a leap year, and then we're going to do another one. I've been doing this every single day since October 24th, 2012. It is now the 20th day of September 2016. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Please call me Sully. I'm recording from Sully Baseball Studio in Palo Alto, California, the birthplace of Oakland A's manager, Bob Melvin, and just a line drive from Sunken Diamond, the baseball home of the Stanford Cardinal. You know, I had a few people write to me wondering why Monday's podcast was not all about me gloating about the fact that for the first time since 1990, the Red Sox swept a four-game series from the New York Yankees in the regular season. Um, uh, for a couple reasons. One is uh, I like to think that uh, I'm above gloating and that I'm a man of taste, I'm a man of restraint. I'm a man who realizes it's not kind to rub salt into the wounds, especially of Yankee fans who had such high hopes for what looked like was turning into a unexpected postseason run, and I decided to be respectful of their feelings. Of course, nobody, and I mean nobody, believes that. Uh, the main reason is I had to burn a uh, Evergreen podcast because I just had no time to record one on Monday. And so uh, for those of you who will accuse me of talking only about the Red Sox and the Giants, let the record show there was no Red Sox podcast the day after a four-game sweep of which the, the three of those games the Yankees led by three runs. I mean, this is, look it. Jason Keidel wrote a great, friend of the podcast, Jason Keidel wrote a great piece on WFAN. This is a successful last two months of the season for the Yankees. They shed payroll, they brought a bunch of young kids up, and got them a little bit of playing time, a little bit of exposure. And you know what? Uh, That's not so bad. Moving forward, that's not so bad. The Yankees have a nice foundation. It's very cute. It's a very nice situation. It's a nice team. They're nice. And I hope they're proud of the little team they're putting together. Meanwhile, the Red Sox continue to move forward. The magic number is down to nine uh, As after they beat the Orioles 5-2. to two. Rick Porcello, is he a Cy Young candidate? Um, he's starting to look like it. Uh, Jason Kyle and Lisa Swan both Yankee fans and friends of the podcast, as were, there were two who asked me, why am I not rubbing it in? And as I wrote back, I said, look it, I'm more focused on contenders like the Orioles than getting fat on non-contenders like the Yankees, which was a sign that deep down, I will always be kind of a jerk. Um, I'm recording this actually on Monday evening, and as of right now, there's a no-hitter going on. But doesn't it seem like that there's always a no-hitter going on into the fifth or sixth inning? I'm not going to get excited about anything going on in Toronto and Seattle until, you know, until it gets into the ninth inning. Then, then you got your pal Sully's attention. Um, with a lot of contending teams and everything going on, I'm not going to focus on these races that are going on now. I'm going to focus on two teams that as recently as, one of them as recently as 2013, 
and another as recently as 2014, were postseason teams. The Cincinnati Reds and the I, – I hate calling them the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim. That name is so stupid. I guess that's their name. Jesus Christmas. I hate that name. And I know it's kind of hacky to bring up the fact that that's a stupid name, but it's a stupid name. So I'm going to call them the California Angels. And I've talked about this. With a couple of hits, a couple of hits in the ninth inning in games one and two of the division series in 2014, the Angels would have been up two games to none against Kansas City and would have inevitably gone on to the American League Championship Series. Meanwhile, the Cincinnati Reds were up 2-0, going back to their home park where they were going to play the last three games in their home park in 2012, and were a Scott Rowland foul ball away from eliminating the Giants, who went on to win the World Series in 2012. And who knows what the legacy of those two teams, the Angels and the Reds, would have been if they had advanced and won a title somewhere along the line. But instead... They're teams that were unceremoniously dumped. Who thinks of the Reds as a great postseason team of this decade? They won the division title in 2010 where they got just, well, they, they were no hit. There weren't two postseason teams in the history of baseball to be no hit. Roy Halladay no hit them in 2010, and the Phillies clobbered them. They spit the bit in 2012, and they lost the wild card game in 2013, and since then they've been just spiraling, mired in the muck. Meanwhile, the Angels, who have been the absolute... When you just take a look at the superstar, the power, the, the, the stars that they've brought in, and the money that was spent, is any franchise more disappointing in this decade than the Angels, who have had a grand total of one, one postseason appearance in this decade and got swept got swept and that would be the Angels, who were a regular postseason participant in the 2000s, winning a title in 2002. But this decade, they are just stuck in the muck, like the duck in the truck. And I think only my mother got that reference. But what these two teams have in common, despite uh, along with... Uh, some disappointing postseason results and wearing red hats is they have both arguably, well, not one, not arguably, but the best offensive forces in baseball play on each of these teams. You can make a compelling, I mean, Mike Trout is the best player in baseball. There is, no, I mean, and this is not coming from, I'm not a sabermetrician. I'm not using war in this analysis. I'm using, if you use just every metric that you can judge a player by, if you like traditional stats, if you like saber metrics, if you like the, you know, the eyeball test, if you like hustle, all this shit that you would use to judge a player, he passes the test, not just in flying colors, but in a way like, yeah, he's the best. I know he doesn't play for a contender. It's not Mike Trout's fault that his team stinks. And, you know, there's ways that the, by calling it the most valuable player, 
I think you give it to the best player in the league. He is the player who you would most value on your team. And yes, I know he's not on a team that's playing on a team down the stretch. And maybe if all things were equal, if there were two players with pretty much equal stats and one was on a team that was going to the playoffs and one wasn't, maybe then it becomes a factor. But Trout is having a tremendous season, statistically as good as anyone in the, in the American League. And he is doing so with power, with speed, with batting average, with the best on-base percentage in the American League, with an OPS that's through the roof, an OPS plus that leads the league, with gold glove defense, and there's nothing he doesn't do. And some of the other contenders for the American League Most Valuable Player race, Josh Donaldson, Jose Altuve, Mookie Betts, they're struggling down the stretch. Betts' home run in Baltimore today notwithstanding. Mike Trout has been playing at a tremendous clip. Right up to, right, you know, his you know, triple tonight and all this. I mean, the last, uh, you know, the second half of the season He's had it, he's batting to an OPS of 986. In this month, he is an OPS of 912. I mean, he's continuing his his slugging percentage, his on-base percentage, his power, everything continues to be through the roof up till the end. And I I know he's not on a playoff contender, but in some ways you'd say, well, who would you first pick? You'd first pick Mike Trout if you had the first pick in the draft. What player, if you inserted into your team, would make the biggest impact? I, don't, I can't fathom how you couldn't say Mike Trout in that situation. He's the MVP. Even if the Angels stink, he's the MVP. And, I mean, I can't get too upset if he doesn't win because he's already won an MVP. If he's never won one, I'll throw my hands up in the air. Yes, he deserves more than one, but at least he has one. But he deserves another one this year. And maybe in the past I have been of the, well, you need to be on a contender. And as I said before, that can be a factor. Except right now, he's just so much better than everyone else. Now, Joey Votto... Uh, uh, last year, uh, Mike Trout led the league in WOB, and the National League hitter last year who led the league in WOB was Joey Votto. He's not going to lead the league in WOB this year, but he is having another outstanding year where he has the power back, he has the high average, but most importantly, he gets on base like no one else, getting the walks, getting the highest on-base percentage in the league and his splits, if you take a look at what he's done in the second half of the season, just, just sit down for a second. Sit down. Some of you might be confused by OPS. His OPS is 1.147. His slugging percentage is 649. His on-base percentage is 498. Do you know what he's batting the second half of the season? 4-12. He's batting over 400 for the second half of the season. 
you know what his on-base percentage was in July? I want you to think, just listen to this for a second. His on-base percentage in July was 549. 5.49. Do you know what it's been the second half of the season? 4.98. Now, I want you to, th- and, and for the season, it's been 4.32, but consider that. It was over 5 for an entire month. What is an adage that you've heard? All oh, it's so true that you get we 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 take it for granted. The idea that the best players in baseball fail seven out of ten times—that's not true. That isn't true. It's only true if you take a look at batting average as success. Now, if you don't. If you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He's getting on base. He's, he gets his hits, but he'll walk a hundred times as well. He will get, if your job is to not make an out and to get on base, and he does hit home runs and he does drive in runs and he does score the runs, but if you, you'll get up. Did he make an out? No. Okay. He is on base now. That means he was... Getting on, he for the second half of the season, he gets on base almost one out of two times, and in fact, for the, an entire month of the season, he was successful more than fifty percent of the time. Yeah, the best players fail seventy percent. What about Joey Votto? He didn't fail seventy percent. He succeeded more than he failed. And even his season-long OPS uh, uh, on base percentage of 432 means he's pretty darn close to being 50-50. You put him up there, it's 50-50. And with Mike Trout, his on base percentage of 436, yeah, that means more than four times out of ten he's going to get on base. And his highest on what's his highest on base percentage for in terms of a month for this you know, four eight uh, this the month of August four eighty six which means just about fifty fifty he's gonna make he's gonna get on base or not so the question I bring up and I brought this up for Joey Votto I think I brought this up for Mike Trout before. But it's become imperative, especially in a season like this, to think about where they hit for this reason. They both have to bat leadoff. The Reds stink. The Angels stink. The one thing they have in their column, well, each team has a couple things in their column, but they have a player who succeeds almost 50% of the time, getting close. And when you have a player like that, who exactly should be getting more at-bats? I've talked about this philosophically before, but the idea of the batting order 
being set up as well. First, you get that guy who gets on base and can steal a base. Then the number two batter's got to be able to move him along. And the number three batter's got to be your best all-around hitter. He gets the hit and then drives him in. And then your number four here's the cleanup batter, and he knocks them all home. Okay. I understand the logic behind that for the first inning. And after that, your leadoff hitter, the guy batting first in the order, could bat third in an inning. Sometimes your number five hitter will lead off an inning. And so when you take a look at this, essentially, we have seen that the leadoff hitter, over the course of a game, will get the most at-bats. Now, this seems so elementary. This is, that's a sort of, well, yeah, no kidding, Sully. What brilliant analysis. What are you going to regale us the next 364 days and complete a year of such great baseball analysis? But listen to what I'm saying. By batting them anywhere but first, you're ensuring someone other than Joey Votto and other than Mike Trout will be getting the most at-bats on a team. I have, or, and, and more specifically, plate appearances. More trips to the plate. More plate appearances goes to the leadoff batter than to any other spot in the order. Seems straightforward, right? Seems kind of easy to understand, right? Well, think about this. On a crap team like the Cincinnati Reds, Moving Joey Votto to the number, he's batting the number three spot. Each spot you move up in the order means about, you know, not, this isn't, you know, don't set your watch to it, but roughly in the ballpark of 30 additional plate appearances. Same thing for Mike Trout. 30 additional plate appearances for each time up in the order. If you bat Mike Trout leadoff with the Angels, that means you'll give him 60 more times to come to the plate. 6-0. And among, in those times, he will get on base about 43% of the time. Let's just say that. And let's just, so let's, what, what does that mean? What does that mean in terms of calculations? I'm going to use my illustrious, um, imagine Mike Trout getting on base roughly 24 more times a year. 24 more times. In addition to everything he's had, 20 more times he's on base to steal to round third, that the next time a batter is up, he's already on base. Yes, someone else has to drive him in, but you get more opportunities. I know Billy Hamilton's faster. I know Cole Calhoun can do this, that, or the other thing. But if the opportunity is to make sure you have someone who is successful in some months, 50% of the time, who do you want up more than that? Who do you want to grab a bat, put a helmet on, go out there, go get him?
60 more times with these guys who have been doing it at an unbelievable clip on teams that stink. That they, These teams stink. If you want to build the team up from that, and you have these two players signed long-term, why don't you just turn to the rest of the team and say, hey, look it, develop your young players, do this, that, or the other thing, but these guys are going to get the most at-bats. They get the biggest piece of chicken at dinner. They get the second helping of lasagna. They get the clicker and get to choose what show you're watching, and they get the most at-bats. And maybe, just maybe, as I said, I don't quite understand how war and all the sabermetrics in the world work. But maybe, just maybe, an additional 60 plate appearances of your best players could, I may be wrong, but could equal an extra win here or there. If a guy comes up and gets a base hit and Votto's on base or Trout's on base, it may mean an extra run here or there. A solo home run might be a two-run homer. A base hit in the gap could be an RBI base hit. And maybe a couple of those wins here or there may be the difference. Maybe not in the pennant this year, but maybe the difference between a truly dreadful season and a season that is, well, oh, I don't know. I don't get it, is what I'm saying. I don't understand the mentality that says we have these players who are on-base machines, who don't make outs, who spit in the face of the convention that you fail 70% of the time and not utilize that and say, we're going to make sure you get the most chances. You don't see that in other sports. If you had Barry Sanders on a team as a footballer, you're not going to say, Do you know what? we're only going to hand the ball to you X amount of time. We're going to hand it to this guy more often. You know, when, when you have LeBron James or if you have Michael Jordan or Shaq or whatever superstar you have on the team, they're going to get the most shots. They're going to get the most shots because they're the best at shooting it. You know, but, you know, Yammer Yager, we're not going to flick the puck to you every time. We're going we're gonna to flick it over to Timmy over here. But in baseball, you say, we got Mike Trout and Joey Votto, but we're not going to put them at the top of the order. No, we're going to put them a little further down because of the first inning. It's insane. It's crazy. It will never make sense to me because it doesn't make sense. And someone out there, tell me why I'm wrong. It doesn't make sense to not give the people who succeed almost as often as they fail a chance to opportunity to succeed more than anyone else on a team, especially ones as lousy as the Reds and the Angels. I don't know. I don't know. Well, it looks like that no-hitter is still going on. Who knows? Maybe it will come to fruition. But the fact of the matter is, your pal Sully is going to go to bed before figuring out who owns baseball. 
So you'll have to check out tomorrow on MLBReports.com to see who owned baseball for the 19th day of September. Get well, Chuck Booth, you're my pal. Uh, you can go to SullyBaseball.com, like me on Facebook, subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, Twitter, Stitcher, Instagram, I'm everywhere. The music is by Ted Thacker and Patrick Kaliski. This has been the Sully Baseball Daily Podcast for the 20th day of September 2016. We're now in late September. I'm your host, Paul Francis Sullivan. Just bat him lead off, and you can call me Sullivan.